Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. This week, joining us, Adarsh Meshru and Mike Johnson. Of course, our host, Tom Dupree. And you've been hearing a lot about the Fed raising interest rates. We're going to start there with our conversation. Over to you, Tom. This song is... um this is from the concert for George Harrison the year after he died. I think it was 2002. Uh, you're hearing Jeff Lynn, who was Electric Light Orchestra, part of the Traveling Wilburys. You're hearing uh, uh, Tom Petty. Uh, you're hearing Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr. There's like three drum sets going. And then the leader of the whole thing is uh, Eric Clapton, and uh, it was and oh, and then Donnie Harrison, the his son D H A N I, and uh, and there are others. But uh, this song came out on George Harrison's first solo album called "All Things Must Pass." which came out like 1970 or really almost coincided with the Beatles. They all kind of came out with albums. And um, it was on that album. It's called Wah Wah. Now, a lot of what was on that album was sort of uh, Hare Krishna stuff. He was really into it. And so, some of it was kind of like a Hare Krishna hymn book. That you're talking about that first, that 1970 album, right? Yeah, yeah. George Harrison was deep into the Hare Krishna stuff. I mean, he names his son Donnie, like D-H-A-N-I, you know, for, for some guru or something. But anyway. This, this concert for George album might be one to listen to. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think it's all on a movie or something. So, anyway. No, it's just... Nice piece of information, but that song on all things all things must pass is a great album. I mean, it's it's like a two album set, and uh, but this Jeff Lynn guy came in later on, and so the Traveling Wilburys, of course, was Jeff Lynn, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, uh, Tom Petty, and Bob Dylan. And they were all very good friends, and it was George's thing. So, all right, let's go. Uh, Fed raises rates by uh, three-quarters of a percent, largest increase since 1994. I don't see how. I think this time around, everything's different than it was with Paul Volcker in the late 70s, early 80s. I don't think... Raising interest rates is the way to beat this inflation. And I'm not sure the Fed really has the tools that they need. The other thing is they can raise rates on the short end all they want, you know, and get the Fed funds rate up there. But I don't know that you're ever going to affect the bond market. Uh, Now, stopping buying mortgage backs has already had an effect on the market. We've seen seen the long end really uh, go higher in terms of yield on especially mortgage-backed securities. 
and how anybody that invests in mortgage backs didn't see that coming. I don't have any uh, sympathy for them. I mean, well, we didn't know what was going to happen. Are you kidding me? I mean, you knew at some point they would have to raise rates. You knew that rates were probably lower than they should be. And um, and then you, I think you'll see a, a little bit of a divergence. I think you've already seen it where the spreads on 30-year mortgages widens considerably over the yield on the 10-year treasury. So that's just kind of my way of looking at it. Yeah, I think you've, you've already seen uh, a widening of uh, spreads. Uh, you know, how far uh, they widen, you know, that is yet to be seen. But, uh, uh, you know, mortgages just uh, last year were the lowest they'd ever been, the mortgage rate. And uh, they've essentially uh, more than doubled in, in a very short period. So that's, that is pretty, that, that is quite a jump. Uh, and the same applies to interest rates on the 10-year uh, bond. Uh, big move there. So, uh, And we, we've seen the impact of that on uh, equity markets. Uh, you know, there was, uh, after COVID, uh, there was a big uh, rise in, uh, you know, a lot of tech stocks, especially stocks that uh, were perceived to do well when people work from home and such. And then there was a big, uh, almost a, uh, a bubble uh, in the issuance of new uh, SPACs, which are essentially, uh, they, they are w- IPOs, but not exactly, but they are basically companies coming to the market. Some of them didn't even know what they were going to invest in. Right, uh, right. It's yeah. like, you know, give me $300 million and I'll go figure this thing out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, bubble basically peaked in February of 2021. So it's been over a year. Uh, and since then, a lot of those stocks have dropped. Uh, ARC, which is uh, which became a very uh, well-known ETF, uh, also peaked in February of 2021 and has since dropped uh, over 75%. So we, we really saw a, a bubble very similar to what we saw during the dot-com bubble, although, you know, obviously tech companies, common argument is that tech companies today are, you know, they have cash flow, they have earnings, which many of them did not. And that that's true. A lot of the older established tech companies do. Uh, a lot of new uh, issues, new c- companies that just came to market in the last two years, a lot of them do not have any earnings. And really the the major speculative bubble was not even in tech stocks, but it was in cryptocurrencies, right. NFTs, where we saw all kinds of, you know, uh, Dogecoin, which, which was just really a joke. It became... Literally, like, it was <laughs> started as a joke, right? Wait a minute. Yeah. I own a bunch of Dogecoin. <laughs> what, what's the problem? What do you mean joke? <laughs> it was... And it at one point, it had a market cap of, I think it was $100 billion. So can you imagine the amount of speculative activity that went on? So, uh, you know, a lot of that was not in the stock market. And, of course, you know, we've seen all that unravel uh, in the last, especially in the last few months. We saw uh, Luna, which was a stable coin that basically, you know, went to zero. Um, And we've seen cryptocurrencies, many of the smaller ones drop by 70, 80, 90%. And Bitcoin is already down... uh, 
like I said, peaked at sixty six or sixty seven thousand, and today is right around twenty thousand. So that's made a big uh, drop. That's dropped significantly. Also, I had an interesting conversation. Um, I spoke with two realtors, and um, uh, they were talking. I was asking you know, with interest rates doing what they're doing, what kind of effect are they seeing already? I mean, it's it's early on uh, with the rates going up, um, <clears throat> but she said they are seeing in in the Lexington area that you know what was two day sell average average sell times you know that's that's getting out to you know even closer to a week and you're seeing less you know you're not having competing buyers come in at the same time you're starting to see uh, uh less buyers out there uh, that was just it was an anecdotal boots on ground kind of thing wow a whole week <laughs> but see that's the thing we're, we're talking about you know like the the speculative bubble in in uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. It's like we're talking about something that was th- houses that were selling in a day or two days, and now with uh, multiple offers, with multiple offers. Right. So, so my so question, you're seeing these things. Well, my question was, why not just have an auction? Because that's what the multiple offer thing with the escalation yeah. clauses and all of that was turning into. And ironically, this weekend there is an auction in four hundred five hundred two, which doesn't happen very often. So. Oh. Things, we did, we things did are one, changing. One yes, we did. It, it, but, it all worked out. Okay. The, so, of all the different kinds of rates, so you have very, very short-term rates, you have sort of mid to intermediate rates, and then you have long-term rates. I think now, with the Fed sort of out of the market on the mortgage backs, that the 30-year rate is probably the least manipulated rate out there because you don't have the Federal Reserve buying, you know, several billion dollars worth of mortgage backs every month. They've stepped away. At some point, they could be a seller, but here's the problem. So much of what they bought a year ago, two years ago, three, four, five years ago, it's underwater now, you know, because – if 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 five and a half percent is the new trading level or whatever it's going to be, you know, that's going to make their three percent stuff that they bought a year ago uh, really underwater in a big way. And so that's the problem is that I think the next thing you're going to see is insolvency potentially at the Fed. And people have said, well, that's not a problem because the Treasury will backstop them. It won't be a problem until it really is a problem. And then when it really is, then it could be a severe problem. So I, I happen to believe that we don't need central banks, that there there could be a central clearing mechanism, but there's no real need for a central bank. Let the market decide what interest rates should be. You want to issue government bonds? Fine. See who wants to buy them. Don't issue stuff that only the Fed will step up and buy. That's a false market. And they're printing fake money to do it with. Yeah, so when you think about why central banks were created, their sole purpose was uh, to prevent runs on banks. So there used to be lots of runs on banks when banks became insolvent. So the Federal Reserve and all other central banks were... Uh, bankers of last resort, basically, where, you know, if the banking system had issues, then someone could, you know, 
put liquidity into the banking system. Uh, we I have a way you can avoid that. Make the make the uh, depositor in the bank also become a shareholder. Right. And uh, they could, uh, rather than just get a market rate of interest, uh, they could uh, actually reap in the... Um, in the uh, uh, financial um, good fortune of the bank, and, and you're going to be less likely to create a run on a bank that you're an owner of. Right. So, like a co-op, basically. Yeah. I mean, and they do that in the sa- savings and loan business, right. or they used to. It was called a mutual savings bank, and they would, but it was really run by management. But even though it titularly gave um, everybody a um, say in the thing it was really but you could you know the whole idea of being able to have a demand deposit it's going to get more expensive to even have a checking account right a lot of the things we take for granted if you look at fractional reserve banking i wonder if it's going to continue to be a viable thing or or going forward, it's going to be more of a fee-for-service thing, or you share in the profits. More like merchant banking. Right. I mean, that's that's really how it used to be. Uh, but, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, I mean, central banks around the world today are so involved, uh, you know, with banking, basically. And uh, now they are stepping back somewhat because inflation is out of control. Uh, so what the consequences will be or what the repercussions will be that, you know, we'll see. And perhaps now Bitcoin also was a consequence of uh, central banks because yeah. when you think about when Bitcoin first came about, it was during the financial crisis where people were starting to lose faith in, you know, what was going on. Um, and, right. th- you know, 14 years later now, uh, it's it's become, you know, who knows if it'll remain uh, viable, but it's it's been here for that long, so th- well, there is I a mean, distrust in the system. Okay, yes, you're right about that. It was a reaction to you know to fiat currency, basically, which is created by central banks. Currency that's there because they we say it's there. Think about what the banking system's really supposed to do: process payments. I don't think the banking system is really supposed to be there to create more currency, but it does because they found out they could. What it's there is to facilitate payments, uh, help maintain a currency that has a stable price, and help businesses and individuals get loans. So what parts of it, I mean, I, I think that uh, if you look at the, the thesis behind commercial banking is I give you a checking account, so you'll have a stable dollar value in your account. In return, I loan your money out. Well, it was seen that that could have flaws in it, fractional reserve banking. Problem is, you know, we talk about, oh, this this thing's leveraged this and this. A regular bank, you walk down the street, everybody thinks the bank's solid. They're leveraged 15 to 1, 10 to 1. And the assets they have are not government securities. 
they're car loans. You know, I mean, they're they're less liquid. So I think we have to rethink the whole notion of commercial banking in this country and maybe worldwide. Right. Um, no, I, I think, you know, I, I think you are right. And, uh, you know, the financial crisis. <laughs> I just uh, made that up. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding you. It's a I mean, there, there does need to be a rethink because, I mean, there we had the financial crisis, which was a severe event. And we were able to it get called it all into question. And you know what their solution was? Print money. Right. And now we are f- facing the consequences of yes. that. So, um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree there. Well, what's wrong with merchant banking? That is where you own a piece of your bank. You actually have a ownership stake in it. It doesn't have to be FDIC insured. That adds a layer of all kinds of really bureaucracy and control. You know what's so great about, this is why I want us to look really hard at Uber and Airbnb. We haven't bought these stocks yet, but the review system, if it's really looked at where you do reviews on them, they do reviews on you, it almost becomes airtight because you're going to have a stake in giving them a good review and they're going to give you a good review as a traveler. If you're staying in an Airbnb or an Uber, you become known. What's wrong with using that in banking? I know doctors are starting to do it now. There used to be a doctor. You couldn't tell if it was a good doctor or a bad doctor. You just, now they have reviews. Doctors have reviews. What about using the banking system that way? It, it, it might even be a better way of rating the financial strength of a bank than than moody's or s&p or these other things because you can put a lot of stuff in your um, balance sheet or or on your uh, 10k or whatever that you know you could fudge on that i mean i'm not saying now we have sarbanes oxley where you could get in a lot of trouble for doing that but the the idea of reviews it's like it's like open source software like linux where people can come in and make changes to the uh, model to, to, to try to make it better. That's the way I look at it. Well, uh, I mean, wouldn't you still have to rely on a third party to review a bank? Because, you know, a bank's balance sheet is pretty complicated. Sure. I think you do. You would, you would have to, uh, you know, know what they owned, but make it very transparent, you know. At one time, banking was based on relationships. I loan you the money. You can tell me you got this collateral, that collateral. It's fine. But ultimately, I'm knowing I'm going to try to find out, are you going to pay me back or not? Are you just taking the money and doing something else with it? So, you know, that's, that's what's most important is that's why we go visit our companies because we want to see the people and get a feel for if they're trustworthy or not. You don't do that as well on a Zoom call or over the phone. You meet them. Going to put our money with you. We want to meet you. Just like people coming in here. Exactly. I mean, we, we, we can do Zoom meetings. We've done them out the wazoo, but there's, there's, 
you, you can't replace sitting down. That's, that's why I stay out of a lot of the meetings. I don't want to scare people. You know? <laughs> oh, good grief! I mean, we got people Spike, requesting to see you. Mike kind of says, "Don't you have to go to the bathroom?" Oh, stop! <laughs> You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Mushroom, Mike Johnson, and Tom Dupree. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. together um it's absolutely fantastic you know it's fun to do this show uh, i mean i'm not fed up with playing them time after time after time because i love them you know i just love the songs and i think everybody else does and otherwise you get it like oh not that one again you know but we don't get any of that it's all yeah that's that one Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us at Darsh Mashru, Mike Johnson, Tom Dupree. My heart kind of skipped a beat when the voice started. I thought something had started playing <laughs> yeah. wrong, but that was actually part of the... That, that was from the rehearsal that they did before the concert for George. That was with his friends, not only Eric Clapton, who was not a part of the uh, Traveling Wilburys, but uh, Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty and the rest of them. And... Uh, you know they they did this concert. I I, I wish I'd been there because it would have been well something that I would remember for a long time. Three money mistakes to avoid in a bear market. Mike hit it. So this want to talk in a bear market, but also want to talk um, in an inflationary environment in a rising interest rate environment. Um, first, talking specifically on uh, the the stock market and investing philosophy, uh, one of the biggest 
mistakes to avoid is not to panic sell. Uh, now, a couple ways to look at it. Panic selling is, wow, the market's down. I can't take it anymore. I'm liquidating everything, going to cash, t- timing the market. Um, there's a difference between that and analyzing an investment that happens to be down and there actually is a problem with it. That's not panic selling. Uh, if there's a problem with an investment, you should sell it. Um, and I'll, I'll put this caveat in there too. Uh, if it's down to a level and you're really uncomfortable with it um, and you can't understand it, don't understand it, don't know how to understand what it is, um, that's a problem. Um, you know, the maybe there's Isn't not that when you buy more. Yeah, when you have no idea what it is or why it's down. Why why did you own it in the first place? Yeah, you know? yeah. that's the question. And that that exactly. Um were you invested properly uh to begin with? Uh d- did you understand what it was? Were you invested in a way that that fits to your situation and your goals? Uh so that's that's a biggie. Um we've <clears throat> done a couple shows where we've talked about, you know, the the idea of trying to time the market and the, the issues with doing that because you have to be right on both sides when you sell and when you buy back. Um, nearly impossible to do. So that's that's a biggie. You know, it's it's we we're having this conversation a couple of days ago and what you pay an advisor for, what our clients pay us for is not in a for for good markets. You know, I mean, in a good market, you can almost throw a dart and make money. I mean, it, realistically, yeah. um, what they pay I us. I think this is a good market, what we're in, because well, there's stuff that's cheap. Exactly, right? exactly. What they pay us for is to be disciplined. They pay us for bad markets so that we we can hopefully calm nerves, calm emotions, Take a long-term view on things, and and exactly what you just said, try to take advantage of the situation and buy good companies at good prices. Um, So bad markets can present opportunities, uh, but they also show weaknesses in your portfolio. Um, If you've had – if your portfolio has just been on autopilot – and you were naturally overweight in a particular sector, well, a bad market calls attention to that, if that's, especially if that sector is done poorly. Um, and that's the importance of constantly monitoring your investments, constantly going back and reassessing what you own, why you own it. Um, that's a biggie. One of the most important things. What do you think of people that we see the biggest problem people have with the whole investment process. The biggest problem they have. Yeah. Where they trip up the worst in terms of being Uh, successful. Concentration, being overly concentrated in a particular area. Um, and always chasing performance. You're always behind the curve when you're chasing performance. What I mean is, well, if, if, if there's a, a hot area, well, they put money to that hot area six months, a year after it's happened. Right. They're chasing that performance, and then when it goes down, they sell it 
and so it, it, you're always behind the curve, kind of kind of like the Fed. <laughs> you know what yeah. the Fed's trying to. You're, you're always behind the curve where you should be, um, rather than having a yeah. stated plan, being prepared for ups, downs, volatility. Uh, you're always chasing things. Um, yeah. What would you say, Adarsh, would be a thing? Well, let's put it this way. You have the psychology of the market. And then you have the psychology of the individual investor. And the individual investor who's, or the institutional investor who's going to do well has to at least try to understand kind of the thinking in the market. Now, he or she may not agree with it. But in order to position oneself in a contrarian way to the psychology of the market, I would argue that initially you have to at least understand what the market is thinking. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and that is very difficult because um, I think psychologically it's, it's much easier to be a part of uh, the herd than it is to think independently. Uh, and as Mike said, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in trends uh, and become victims to recency bias, which is when, you know, something's been going up and, you know, this is where I remember uh, just about a few months ago, you know, talking to people. I think the consensus was that you know, money has to be in electric vehicles, in, um, um, you know, cybersecurity. There were all these fields, you know, um, and that's where everyone was investing, um, you know, green technologies. And it turned out that the best investment over the last year and a half really was, you know, oil and gas, which was la the last uh, thing on anyone's mind. Um, so... It it was actually one of the best uh, contrarian investments I've ever uh, you know seen, where uh, no one was thinking about. You know, I think the consensus was that oil and gas is done. That's it. So, uh, in order to think, uh, <laughs> the last few days would make you think they're thinking that way again. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true, and that's that's why markets are difficult. Perhaps they've become even more difficult because movements are even quicker. You know, in the past, it would have taken maybe two months for a move of this magnitude where something just moves 10% or 20% in a matter of a week. Um, so um, it's important to, when you create your portfolio, or when you make investments, I, I think the first thing that everyone needs to do is to be honest with themselves and admit that, you know, they are prone to becoming victims of groupthink or, you know, of herd psychology. So your investment process has to have some sort of a, you know, almost a, a systematic element to it where, you know, you are, you know, either rebalancing, you know, if things go up or you are making sure that you're, you're not too concentrated in something just because it's gone up. So for example, uh, Technology was the best performing sector, uh, really, you know, since the 
financial crisis, but more so since 2016, where it really started moving up. Uh, and as a result, you know, people who had investments in technology, they saw that it kept going up, and it became a very large uh, portion of their portfolios. And all of a sudden, you know, we've seen that when things reverse, now it's it's uh, hurting them uh, proportionally even more because they were too concentrated in that area. So. I think you have to have a plan. You have to know your time frame first of all. You know uh, whether you're a trader or a long-term investor. You have to be clear on that, uh, and you have to have a plan of uh, for how you will uh, treat your investments. You know if there are outside outsized moves, uh, or if you know if you know the returns have deviated significantly from from the mean. Well, to that point. Um I've seen several portfolios recently where the person is getting or was planning to retire and it had been on autopilot and some of the large uh, mutual funds out there that are in a lot of 401ks, which were tech heavy, especially uh, the FANG stocks uh, heavy, um, it had done extremely well for several years and it kind of got to a point where hey you know i've i've hit quote unquote i've I've hit my level um and then this year happens and some of those funds are down 30 percent which is about what the nasdaq is down um and so again it was on autopilot and there was no review they just selected the box that said aggressive growth exactly they they rode that for Years exactly, and, and there was they, there was no rebalancing. They didn't change the allocation as they're getting closer to retirement, anything like that. And then, bam, this hits a year before retirement, and it it uh, changes it changes every, the numbers, the whole trajectory. Yeah, exactly. All right, so just to keep us on track, that was panic selling, which is the number one of this article it's number one for the three money mistakes to avoid in a bear market number two is using up emergency savings to pay down debts yeah <laughs> thanks for getting <laughs> us back on track that all do, that was do, that was do we, all do we do we use up emergency we, savings not to pay down debt but just to buy stuff <laughs> yeah that's a, and so, keep the debt yeah so here here's here's the the biggest takeaway from debt, you know, we're talking about a rising rate environment. If you have any form of variable interest rates, floating rate, you know, could be credit cards, could be home equity line of credit, yeah. could, could be a those number be of things. Two, most likely. Yeah. Um, those you need to be very careful of because the rates are going up on those, uh, on, on that debt. And that is a good use of money. In the context of the overall plan, how much cash do you have? Where do you do you have to take something out of a pre-tax to do that? Then that's another discussion. But uh, in general, paying down variable rate is a good thing to do. Right. Now, if you have fixed, you know, like a mortgage, um, if you've got a fixed mortgage at three and a half percent, that's that's a that's not bad debt because uh, you know at some point. You're going to have now. We're not talking real rates, you know. After after inflation, inflation adjusted, but you you could have quote unquote risk free rates higher than what your mortgage rate is, you know, and you're paying it in inflated dollars. Yep. 
Um, so that kind of debt, again, it all has to be taken in the context of your whole overall situation. But right. variable rate debt, that's a good use of funds, generally speaking. Well, you know, depending upon how much it'll float up to. Right. And it's going to be on a case-by-case thing. Yep. If you would, you know, the market, here's the thing that we haven't really seen. You know, we've talked about fears in the past. Now, I don't know whether Americans and investors in general are just feared out. You know, they, they don't respond to fear like they maybe once did you've had the pandemic you've had all these things one of the things that you said was that you didn't see that fear-driven capitulation yeah in these markets uh i don't know i mean i don't know if it's going to be forthcoming i mean i just i don't know if people are kind of in that mode of, of really being completely motivated by fear these days. I mean, you know, they've seen so much go on I agree. in our country. I mean, yeah. you know, that's a hell of a lot worse, some of it, than than uh, the stock market being down. That's right. And and, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really – and I don't know if they're that greedy either. You know, they just kind of want to have what they've got and get on down the road. Well, I think my, my point is, is it's been orderly. And you, whenever Which would imply not fear driven, not fear driven, or out of necessity. Uh, if you have, you know, the the margin calls, you have wow. that that kind of thing where it gets disorderly. You, you have the forced liquidation of securities, which rolls on into other areas. Usually, you will see that in a, a severe market turmoil we saw it in 2020 we definitely definitely saw it in 2008 2009 um so and we haven't seen that yet you haven't markets have functioned order in an orderly fashion right all right so number three (laughs) of the three money mistakes to avoid in a bear market is spending as if nothing has changed what's your take on that one let me, let me do a deal on that. There was a guy that came in one time years ago. I think it was before you were even here. Mm-hmm. He had just gotten laid off from a job. I won't say what it was, but it was a higher income thing. He was now on disability. He was making about a fourth of what he'd made, but he hadn't told his wife, and she was still spending like she was. he was making the high salary. And I think he was afraid to. And I said, until you confront your wife about this, I don't think I can help you. He turned about the color of that copy paper right there, and and I never heard back from him. The point is, the spending thing for a lot of people, they're just going to do what they do, and they really don't want to have to deal with it. And, And so it's a problem. Right. There, when you're when you're dealing with markets, there's some things you can control, or some things you can't. You can control what you own, what you don't own. You can't control the market. You can, to a certain degree, control your spending and your expenses, um, and and that comes down to discipline. Uh, it comes down to you know your choice of 
lifestyle, your activities, but there you do have some control on the expenses. Um, and this, this isn't to say, well, it needs to be X dollars a month or you're irresponsible, nothing like that. Know what you're spending. Know what you have coming right. in and know what you have going out. Uh, most people know what they have coming in. A lot of people don't know what they have going out. Yeah. Um, and that's just, that's just human nature. Um, you know, we, we like to spend, we like to, we like, you know, immediate gratification. Um, and so again, it's like with, with most things, you need to have the discipline before the, the trial hits, you know, be disciplined to know, you don't need to know down to the penny every month, but know basically what you spend and and what you have coming in. Um, and then when you have a period of bad markets or um, unexpected expenses, just unexpected things, just life events, then you can react quicker because you're not playing catch up to know, hey, you know, where can I cut? Where can I cut these expenses? Yeah, there's another thing. Um, you should try to produce cash flow from something you do as long as you can. This idea of stopping work at age 62 or 65 and not having any other form of income puts an undue amount of stress on your retirement account to make up for that lost income. Well, and people are living longer, which means your money has got to last longer. That's a whole nother discussion. But if you want us to take a look at what you've got going on now, there's not a better time than now. Because if you need to have some adjustments made, uh, you need to know as soon as possible. You can call us at uh, 859-233-0400. Go to the website, DupreeFinancial.com. There's a tab you can schedule a time to see us. One of the things that we pride ourselves on is letting you talk about your about your situation and then we listen very closely and make recommendations only based on what we think you need. So call us, come in, and we'd love to see you. We appreciate you listening to the Tom Dupree Show. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>